Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 161. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and this week we have our normal semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay is the CEO of Zega Financial and co-founder of Zega Financial, author of Buy and Hedge, the book. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Derek. Good to be here. Episode 161. I'm never on the even numbers, am I? You are not. Uh, apparently, you have an aversion to those. And maybe a 200, I can convince you to actually block off the calendar. But we'll, we'll yeah, see Yeah, we should. There. I should plan for it now. That's uh, That will be in 40 weeks, I guess. For 39 weeks. Once, once 39 a week. Weeks. Anyway. All right. All right, Jay, what is, uh, well, the episodes are going up. Also, bond yields are spiking. And I thought we'd start there. A lot of talk about inflation and bonds, and I've been hitting on it. I did an episode last week about some misconceptions about inflation. But really, I want to bring this back to sort of the what it means for investors, portfolios, and then there are any things, what is it? Mark Twain says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think that's the quote. If not, sorry, yep. Mark Twain. Um, it is now. One of the things I, I read in Bloomberg, it is now. Right? If, it's, if it wasn't already, it is now. But one of the things I read in Bloomberg, Jay, this week was the idea that if we look at a very long-term trend of U.S. Treasury yields, we know that they spiked in, I think it was 1982. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But if you go back and you look at a long-term trend line, it's been in a downward channel, meaning there are lower highs and lower lows. And it's really been since, you know, 1985. But there's something that, that's interesting that they pointed out, and none of our listeners can see this, but, you know, 1987, we saw 10-year yields come up against the upward down-sloping trend line. Uh, and then... You know, 1994, early 2000, 2007, 2008, uh, November of 2018. And they're actually coming up against that trend line. They're actually through the long-term trend line again. So, Jay, I don't know if history will repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Uh, interestingly enough, I think this deals with, you know, a lot of the the stuff that's out there is built on low interest rates. And it's built on short rates being lower than long rates. So I don't know if you remember 1994. Uh, I think I, that was probably the first year I was in the markets. And there was this big default. Orange County defaulted when that happened in 1994. Also, the Mexican peso devalued in that year. Yeah, there was a, I remember there was a, yeah, there's a bunch of defaults. There was a little bit of, uh, what are the savings and loans scandal? Was that around that time? If I, that was the okay, 80s. My, that was uh, Charles that was Keating, 80s? who I've met. Yeah, that was, right. yeah. That was a different Char time. Charles Keating, by the way, couldn't have been nicer when I met him. So I have a signed <laughs> copy of his book. That's, I'll get into that another time. But yeah, that was, that was sort of, yeah, that was the 80s. But 94 was the, the biggest at the time municipal bankruptcy ever. And they were borrowing short and investing long. And it's more complicated than that. But that's what they did when, when short rates went above long rates didn't work anymore. So didn't work. I don't know, Jay. I mean, it, do you think this time is different? I mean, it's why we hedge and we'll get into that, but I don't know. Well, you know, like, look, that is, it is a pretty well-established uh, downtrend as you were just talking about kind of those, the years where we saw kind of those peaks and then, you know, there are valleys and, you know, they go like five to seven years between the peaks. Um, we kind of missed a little bit of a peak. It could have been considered a peak in what was that, 2014 maybe-ish. It didn't quite get to a you know to a to a level that you know that held up. But the pop in 2018, right, where we kind of got to another high before the dip, and then of course COVID came and rates dropped again. You know that that is a pretty well established uh, downtrend. But you know uh, there were some that may argue. You can't go down forever. Now, we know in other countries and economies that they did. They went down and they went past zero, right? Like there's always a – is there a floor at zero interest rates? The answer is no. no. We learned that a few years ago, right? It was, it, was, it was okay to operate with negative interest rates. So, you know, it, before that happened a few years ago, I would have said, well, eventually this thing just has to, you know, 
level out, and then eventually start going back up, right? A 30-year bond bull market has to come to an end. I mean, 40-year, really. Like, what are we talking about here, right? Yeah, right? So, like, since 82 to now. So, uh, that will end eventually. But, you know, if uh, I think that is yet to be determined. It certainly feels like this inflation problem we have is a good enough reason for uh, interest rates to actually reverse that downward trend and cause bonds to end the bull market that they've seen for so long. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit later about the fact that this time is different because the sensitivity to changes in rates is so much greater than it was. Yeah. I'm, I've, uh, this is just something that I'll watch and Bloomberg pointed out, um, because all of these, these sort of high, higher or lower highs, when they butt up against the trend line, something happened. You know, November of 18 led to December of 18, the mini bear market that was, you know, 19.99% down. So technically not a bear market. Uh, markets have retraced already. So, I mean, this is why we hedge. We're not saying anything's going to happen, but it is interesting. And the world is definitely set up for, you know, lower interest rates. Um, we probably won't talk about it. We've talked about it in the past, but the shape of the yield curve is inverted now in a lot of spots. Threes, sevens, fives are all over tens. And that's not normal. And we'll see if that causes something or if it doesn't. Speaking of interest rates, though, Jay, uh, uh, I want to read you something. And uh, we always say that, you know, people should should really be invested, stay invested, probably be hedged. Not probably. They should be hedged or have some buffers. And, it, and part of the reason why we say that is because all the experts over time, you know, if you do a Google search and you just look and see what people are saying, a lot of times they are wrong. People said the market's going to crash 80%, never did. People said the market's, you know, this, that, or the other thing, we're going to be up 100%, never did. But I want to read you something, Jay. And um, there's one quote that says, well, the experts, oh, here is, why buy the long bond, meaning bonds that are further out in time? when the future is so uncertain and higher returns are available in the money markets. Somebody else said, while experts are divided, many investors have opted for safety in money markets where they can earn 17 or 18%. I think I just gave away what year this is from. On 30-day investments <laughs> with little risk. Longer-term notes and bonds bought um, at earlier interest rate peaks have lost value. And then somebody just said, I, I just don't see how the investor can lose what yields this high. I'll, give, I'll say this guy's name because apparently he was right. James Lowry, president of investment banking firm, bearing his name. Traders are going to send the market up and down. It would be foolhardy to get in their way. But I think the continued decline in inflation will be recognized one day and lead to the biggest bull market for bonds you ever saw. Uh, that's James Lowry. So there's three opinions in a 1982 New York Times article that I pulled by doing a Google search, Jay. Um, the experts aren't right on this stuff, and we really don't know what's going to happen, right? You, you don't know, right? It's uh, it's it's nice to kind of get the the mix there, um, you know. But the, the, and this was out while inflation was where, like when when was this? Uh, what, just this was just about the peak in rates. Yeah, rates peak, peak maybe right? two months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't. And we're kind of just starting to approach our peak, right? I, I probably should say you and I are in the camp that we assume interest rates, uh, our base case is that interest rates will go higher, right? Like we're, we're just getting into the point of what the Fed is, is going to start raising rates. They already did their first 25 basis point raise, already talking about doing 50s now. And we believe rates are going to uh, be in an upward trend over the next year and a half, two years, right? Let's Let's establish that as our first base case. If that's if that's if we're going to make that assumption, we're just in the beginning of what this article uh, uh, talks about. But afterwards, right, where where rates were kind of peaking out, so you know we're not there where you can take this and go, oh, let's uh, let's just repeat 1982. We got to get into 1982 first. Although let's hope we don't get into 1982, right? It's it is a different environment than than the early 80s uh, today. But um, the whole point about where inflation is and how it's getting uh, combated, you know, you could see another pop in, you know, rates, which would cause, you know, a, a dramatic pop in rates in an effort to combat eight, nine, I think you even theorized 10% inflation. We may see a print one month. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, revealing something there where you've thought that's possible. Um, Correct. And then we got to figure out what happens as you come out of it and coming out of it might be great, but going into it, it's not going to feel great. 
So, you know, I just think it's really interesting, Derek. I love how you, you're always, um, you know, helping everybody remember that what we're going through is not new, but just probably slightly different than the last time. Right. And whatever, whatever it is, right. Whether it's a sell-off from four months ago or a sell-off from four or 40 years ago, right. There's ways to refer to history and no two, no two are the same, but there's ways to you know, kind of infer what's going to happen. I always joke around that uh, if I was writing my book in April of 1982, I would have said, buy a 30 year treasury bond. My book would have been one page, buy a 30 year treasury bond, get the 15, 16% interest every year, which by the way, the interest check with your uh, tax advisor, of course, not, not tax advice, but the interest is, you know, not federally exempt from taxes, but uh, theoretically, hypothetically, big air quotes, uh, local state. I mean, 16% local and state tax exempt yield for 30 next 30 years. I mean, that's anyway, I was 10 then playing with matchbox cars, uh, not writing books about the market, but certainly Jay, I mean, you know, Anyway, I don't want to get too off track on on that. But by the way, I, I pulled some data and let me know if you're surprised about this or not. I said, you know, a lot of people are talking about housing and you and I are not, uh, we don't, I was going to say trade housing. We don't certainly, uh, it, it's not a market that we are experts in. We don't have expertise. It's, I'll leave that for other people. But I have seen some talk recently about, hey, if interest rates go up, housing is going to get killed or, you know, there's no way at these high prices. And I mean, generally over time, housing goes up with the rate of inflation, but I found this was interesting. The median sales price versus U.S. 10-year treasury yield. And it might surprise you from April of 72 to April of 82, which had inflation, uh, the interest rate on 10-year treasury went from 6.2% all the way to 14.18%. So more than doubled. And guess what? Housing prices, median sales price, went up 160% or about 10% annually over that time. And we, there's three recessions in there. Jay, I got to admit, I, th- I was surprised. What do you think? Yeah, I was, I was, I was surprised with that too. Um, I admit the first thing it made me think about was, you know, demographics. Where were the boomers in those ages? Were they all, you know, they had to buy houses because they were at that age where they were going to have kids. No offense to any boomers. That's not a slight. That's just a generation thing. I didn't mean it like what my son would call his grandfather <laughs> now. Or you, um, or you, or I. <laughs> he can't call us boomers, right? Or, I but, mean, you know, it's may, all perspective, but, you know, right? I mean, you I, know. I guess to him, I'm a thousand years old. Um, uh, yeah, so you, like when you think about that, right? So let, let's just repeat what that number is. So during the, the last time when we had an elongated period of interest rates on the rise, right? And you're using 72 to 82, like that 10-year period, which was, you know, kind of in advance of when inflation peaked out and rates peaked out. You had rates going up. You said they went from six to twelve, peaking out where, like six to fourteen. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I I mean, thirty-year yields were, um, I mean, close to sixteen at one point. Yeah, I mean, sorry, ten years. Ten years was close to sixteen. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the tenure was close to 16. So, right. So that, okay. So they definitely went through a period of rising rates. And during that same period, housing prices went up dramatically. So the only, and you're right, because one of the ways um, that, you know, the Fed slows down the economy when it raises rates is it immediately impacts the housing market. At least we assume it does, right? I think we got housing numbers this morning. Derek. Um, and I think they were off by 5%, right? Versus expectations, right? So how the housing market, you know, uh, is drying up a little bit and we will typically point to, you know, mortgage rates as the reason for that. And those are tied to interest rates, right? So, you know, as rates go up, people realize, eh, maybe I don't want to spend that money or I can't get a better house than I could have say, you know, six months ago, because now I got to pay a higher mortgage, right? We all know the connection and people, buy their house based off what their monthly payment is, not necessarily based on what the value of the house is, right? What can I afford? Oh, great. My mortgage is cheaper. My interest, uh, you know, the, the interest rate on my mortgage is cheaper. It means I can get more house for my, you know, $2,000 a month I'm going to spend, right? So all of, you know, put all that together. The expectation here is when rates go up, we should see the housing market slow. And we're already seeing it happen because rates have started to move higher, especially this year. 
the last two months. So I am surprised with this, but the, the only thing I could think about is really kind of like, you know, you know, the, the, the demographics that were going on in America at the time, uh, that, you know, there were just a lot of people looking for houses. Um, I will say one other thing to this, I did hear inventories were really low and that may keep the housing market up for a little while without as many transactions, right? So the house value may hold and I, I bet it, I bet it does like in a way just simply because of, you know, how hard it's been <laughs> to get a mortgage the last decade after the great recession, right? It's not easy and banks aren't lending on as much. And so, you know, people distress selling probably won't happen as much as, you know, the last time that we, you know, had some sort of a housing decline, but it also would be interesting to know the volume of houses, right? So that, that, that moved, right? So that's the other thing that may be missing on this, Derek, right? So the housing prices stayed higher, which was really great. Um, but it might've been because of a demographics at the time or B, we just don't know how many houses were, you know, being bought and sold at the time. What was the housing market like? It's the only thing I could come up with, right? Because you're right. It's a little baffling to see rates on the rise and housing prices on the rise. Yeah, I, I agree, Jay. And I think you're right about the inventory. In fact, if somebody had a 10% mortgage and mortgages went to 20%, you'd say, well, I'm not going to move. And maybe it's the same forcing function. I don't know if that's the right word this time versus then. But yeah, if somebody has a 30-year mortgage at 2.7% and mortgage rates go much higher, they're going to be like, well, I'll just kind of stick it out, right? Um, of course, the other thing that's not mentioned in here is if we think about a house much like a, a company thinks about a, a hard asset, you know, a plants, property, equipment, the depreciation costs go up, your fixing costs, all those types of things. But anyway, unless we make this uh, uh, a housing discussion, we are more equity and bond people for sure, Jay, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. We know it all fits into the mix. There you go. Yep. Speaking of equity returns, uh, I had another thing I wanted to take a look at. And that's, we're in a midterm year, meaning there's going to be elections this year in the midterms. And they're going to elect Congress and Senate, no president. That's not for, uh, what is that? 2024, I guess, next election. So 24, yeah. Yep. So, okay. So 1931 through 2018 uh, did a search for this and Capital Group had a, a graph. And there's a clear delineation or difference between all other years, meaning the S&P when there are not midterm elections, and midterm election years. And everyone can't see this chart but that we're looking at, but basically it's during midterm election years historically, the market's kind of grinds, maybe a little bit lower. And then it looks like uh, you know October into November starts to run up through the end of the year. So maybe what we're experiencing is a little bit of the midterm malaise in the first half of the year. I don't know. Maybe. Well, I mean, we're, it, we're, we're worse off than what this is saying, right? So the, you're, you're right. So between January to October, during midterm election years, the market's sideways, right? Right now, we happen to be down. And because obviously, this is an average of each one of the months in a midterm election year, right? That's the way this data is is put together. And so, you know, it's not surprising through March that we're down a little bit in the equity market. Um, that seems to be pretty standard stuff, down a little bit, up a little bit. I can't remember where we were in 2018. I think we were up a little bit the first uh, uh, quarter of the, the year. Um, but, you know, you're right that it is a definite difference, especially once you get into like May, June, right, where markets tend to just continue to go up. It looks like this grind sideways till the fourth quarter. Right. Really, it looks like right about until the middle of October. Right. So which is obviously preceding the election, typically. So, yeah, I mean, this is we're, we're, we're not following. Uh, sorry, we're following something this year that is not unusual. Um, I don't know if this is the reasons why our market is doing what it's doing. You know, hardly anybody's talking about this, but that doesn't mean anything just because no one's talking about it doesn't mean it's an underlying current. But, yeah, this is not unusual here. But. You know, I don't know. I'm, if someone said, hey, are we are we treading sideways right now because of midterm elections? I probably would put that, you know, I'm not even sure if that would crack the top 10 reasons why the market is doing what it's doing right now in my book. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I do think it's interesting on an investment committee uh, the other day, 
one of the members brought it up. Say, and and the question was, when do we start hearing about midterms impacting the markets? Like, that's that's should be a thing, right? At least the media will focus on it. Jay, we've heard nothing so far. Nothing. Right. right. It's been Ukraine, uh, Russia. It's been interest rates, the Fed. Um, whatever else, you know, is, is out there. Um, we, we've heard, I mean, we had earnings season, we'll have earnings season again in April. So, um, yeah, I mean, TBD, I just thought it was interesting. It goes back to the whole, doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes quote. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. speaking of rhyming, uh, there's been a lot of rhyming between bond returns and stock returns this year. And I think this is going to be the, the crux of our discussion today. I pulled up some data going back to, let's see, this is 1980. And I looked at the U.S. aggregate bond index, the total returns, that includes dividends uh, compared to the S&P total return index. And uh, I will say, although I have data going back to 1980, I think it's 1999, um, certainly from 1999 on, I think it's a, a, a better comparison uh, 90 to 99, the index was a little bit different. It's not like I got these, these numbers, Jay, off like a guy on the street. You know, it's not like the, uh, the police squad where you go and get your shoes shine and like Tommy Lasorda shows up and said, I need a left-handed pitcher. And the guy gives him a list of 10 left. You remember that show, Jay? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> right. You lost Police me, squad, which, which turned into naked gun. Oh, there was oh, a oh yes, of course. I, yes, yeah. I do remember the Naked Gun in that, okay, police squad. But I, I don't See, know this reference where Tommy Lasorda shows up. There was So it used to be a, a show before it was a movie. And every week you'd have normally, you know, a celebrity or a sports person. And there was a shine guy. And, you know, you'd go up and, you know, like Frank Dremen, the, the police squad captain would be like, hey, I'm looking for intel on, you know, this guy. The shoeshine guy would be like, I, I don't really know anything you're talking about. And he would look around left, right, and he'd hand him, you know, a $20 bill. He's like, this is where you want to go to get this guy, you know? So anyway, that's my reference there. I didn't get the, I didn't get the data from a guy, you know, the shoeshine guy on the street. But anyway. Wow. Let's that, get, that was a long <laughs> way to go on that one, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I thought you would. So you you would know say, where did you get this? By the way, I do like all the Naked Gun movies. They're, they're hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so where, where did you get the data from? Just pieced it together from different papers. and But I mean, the, from 99, 90, 99 on, it's, it's good data. It's all good yeah. data, but it's just pieced together. Anyway, let's get back on track. The point of this whole thing is we're in, a, in an unusual time, although we're not calling, you know, it's not a full year yet. Stocks and bonds are both down. And, you know, it's, if I look, has there been a year since 1980 when stocks and bonds, you and the U.S. aggregate, have both been down? The answer is no, not on a full year basis. We're down so far this year, both. And what people think bonds are going to do in a portfolio, they have not done. In fact, bonds, U.S. aggregate bonds, I think they're down more than equities this year. So I bring this up and we'll get here Thankfully, uh, I'll get back on track. Jay, is the 60-40 portfolio finally dead looking at what we're seeing in bonds? Look, it's it's something we've been talking about. And and I don't, you know, while your data is absolutely right, Derek, that there hasn't been a time between now, uh, it's back to 1980, where bonds and stocks were both down. It seemed like a pretty good bet in the past to have a little bit of both in a portfolio Although arguably the last couple of years with, you know, in 2018, bonds made 2.3%. In 2019, they made 2%. In 2020, 1.7. 2021, 1.4. Like they, they were they are hardly even outpacing inflation. So it was kind of dead money anyway, right, in bonds at that point, right? So it's been kind of moving along this trend. And now finally here we are where we're at a, st- we're at a point where they're both negative. But you know, Derek, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you props, and uh, because of everything that's going on here, I took a look at your book, right? And I opened it up, and I remembered you writing this on page 19, the beginning of chapter two. I'm gonna read you a line from your own book and see if uh, you want to comment on that. Here's how it starts. It says, "There's a very real possibility that we are going to set up for a lost decade with respect to bond total returns." 
And so what you're, I think what you're talking about here is that bonds have probably stopped providing value and actually they'll probably create, you know, negative value at some point. So let me shut up for a minute there and give you, uh, I want to give you props for calling this out years ago and give you a chance to comment on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, what did I, I wrote that book, what, 2018, I think it came out. So thank you. Yeah. And, and by the way, there's two ways to look at this on a nominal basis, not including inflation. I think the thought was, you know, you pretty much over long periods of time, you get whatever the yield is. And I think when I wrote that, the yield is probably, you know, around 2% or something like that, maybe. And on a real basis, though, after inflation, I mean, we have negative real returns. The year I yeah, wrote it's that not book. not just this and, year, right? Yeah, yeah, since you wrote the book and even a few years before that, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah I, think, I think we are setting up for, for a couple things. And one is, especially treasuries, the fact that treasuries have so much sensitivity to interest rates, the lower the, the coupon helps that. And then the further you go out, it, those are more sensitive. But yeah, Jay, I mean, I think, are bonds going to return? what they returned in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, I, I just don't see it. I don't see it. And, you know, this year, the U.S. aggregate bonds, what are they down? You know, 7% or so? I, I, At least 7% as of, you know, today's March 25th, right? I think it's 7 or 8% yeah. are down as we're finishing out. US, uh, I mean, U.S. 10-year treasuries have got to be down, um you know, a little bit more than that because they had that that duration. And then thirty-year treasuries are—I mean, I think thirty-year treasuries are down twenty percent or something. And I, I read in Bloomberg that on a one-year basis, U.S. aggregate bond returns are the worst they've been. I think they go back to nineteen ninety-nine, worse than two thousand eight for over a year-to-year period. So, Jay, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree, I, and I—I I still think that. I think if you just own bonds there's a good possibility it's going to be a lost decade. Does it mean you're going to lose 20%? No, that's not what I'm saying. A lost decade is pretty much flat, you know? I don't know. What do you think, Jay? No growth. Yeah, no growth. Yeah, no, no no growth. I mean, that's that's what you mean by the lost decade there. It could be negative, it could be slightly positive. Certainly not outpacing inflation. Um, yeah, you know, I was... Uh, I was at a, I did a seminar just last night, actually, in, uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, for any of you that were there. Thanks for attending. Um, and we talked a little bit about some of the data you provided to us, which was, hey, when the when interest rates go up 1%, the expectation is that your 30-year bond will lose about 20% and a 10-year bond will lose about 9.5%. And you know, I asked the crowd if anybody held any bonds and a handful of them raised their hands. And I said, how are they doing? And everybody just kind of put their head down. They weren't really happy about that. Um, but I said, who wants to tell me what we're projected uh, for where we're projected for rates to be by the end of the year. And, you know, the crowd was kind of on it and they knew that we're projected to be over 2% on the Fed funds rate by the end of the year. So, you know, that's going from, a, you know, basically, what was it, zero to 25 basis points up 200 basis points by the end of the year. If you're holding bonds, that's going to be a little bit of a rough ride. Now, I want to, I want to merge this into kind of another topic, another thing you pointed out in your book, again, you know, when you, when you write quality, Derek, like this, I think uh, it, it, it deserves <laughs> to be reviewed on a regular basis. By the way, great gift, the broken pie chart for anybody yes. thinking of, uh, uh, you know, looking for an early uh, April Fool's gift, right? This is perfect, right? Or Easter. <laughs> I Easter's probably, great I probably could have said Easter instead for you, buddy. So, Well, yours as well, uh, buy and hedge and broken pie chart. You put you put them both in an Easter basket, wrap that thing up, put a chocolate bunny. You're going to be uh, living, living large for a while. That's it. That's it. The kids will love it. You can hide the yeah. books around the yard instead of Easter eggs even, right? Right. It's, it's buy multiple long-term ones. Long-term value. Yes. Let, let them let read the book yes. at 10 years old. I think it's beautiful. Um, no, I'm going to reference something else. So we're talking about, you know, bonds uh, can lose value. But this, this is not the only time bonds have lost value, right? It's not the only time rates have gone up. Um, but historically, uh, there's a little more interest to be paid on this, right? And one of the things you, you point out in one of your charts, actually on page 27, you actually point out, like, strip out the coupons, right? How did bond values move? Over the last, I guess you got back to 1928 in the book, 
right? And there are plenty of years where bond values dropped more than 5%, more than 10%, uh, especially over the last 20 years. And so, you know, maybe comment on that a little bit and why have people, you know, not kind of abandoned bonds uh, in the past and maybe why now it's a little bit of a rougher ride, right? You want to kind of maybe walk through the difference between then and now. Yeah. And, and the, the title of this chapter was Why Bonds Past Performance Can't Equal Future Results. What you're specifically talking about, and, and let me just drill down to one year, it's 1980. The 10-year treasury bond had a coupon rate of 12.84%. Awesome. That means if nothing happened to rates and nothing happened, you know, nobody thought the U.S. government was in default or anything like that, for the year, you'd expect about 12.84% return. That's awesome. That's better than the long-term average in equities. But what happened? Well, interest rates went up. Uh, they went up from, I think, one point, uh, they went from 10.39 to 12.84. Okay. The total return that year was my, only minus, I'll just call it 3%. Why is it only 3% down? Because you had the coupon. You had the coupon to, to give you a cushion. The market only change in that bond was minus 15.83%. So if you held the 10-year treasury minus 15.83%, but guess what? You got paid a nice juicy coupon and it offset the negative impact of a change in rates, Jay. And I think that's a good example. Right now, if rates went up 200 basis points on a 10-year treasury that's paying 2.5%, you'd expect to lose probably 15% on that. And you'd have a negative return. So that's kind of what I was going at, Jay. Yeah. And, and listen, I think it's a great point. You had the buffer to withstand a depreciation in the bond because the yield was so high. Right. If somebody told me right now I could buy a 12, uh, a 12 percent U.S. Treasury bond, like I, I'd be hard pressed to not do that. And I certainly don't know why you'd even pay an advisor. At that point, unless it was to actually go find the bonds, I guess that's why they were more brokers than advisors back then, right? Because you just had to find the guy to buy it for you, and then you held it, and you got your uh, your coupon sent to you. Uh, Correct. Six months or so, right. So it is a, it is obviously a different world now, um, and there isn't that buffer, right? At the beginning of the year, if you held a ten year, you know, treasury, you were getting paid what. One and a half. Where did we start the year on? On uh, yeah, on but one four one right around there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know, at that point, you withstanding a ten percent, fifteen percent drop in the bond, it's going to take a lot of coupons to pay it off, right? Uh, to to offset that, right? So it's one of those things that it's just a different environment. And I do think you're right. I think we, you know, can continue to see uh, bonds uh, fail to provide the safety and income that they have in the past. Um, tying it back to the first chart where we talked about with that downward trend, that would probably mean we finally break the bull market that we've had for 30 years in bonds, right? Uh, and maybe in a sustained way, right? That would be kind of a break where interest rates do kind of start to go back to reversing that downtrend to now go from you know higher lo- lower highs to higher highs. So I think I, I think that that feels like a very good possibility. This also has overreaching effects too. Uh, I want to move to the kind of the, is this the death of the 60-40 portfolio? But I wrote one of the other chapters titles was Target Date Surprise. And it was the fact that a lot of these target date funds have big allocations, especially for those that are in retirement, pretty big chunk in bonds. So, you know, I can't tell you how many people I speak to that use target date funds. And I think they're, you know, when they were created, they made a lot of sense. They follow modern port theory, modern portfolio theory, and you say to yourself, "Okay, I'm going to retire in you know 2035. Let me buy the one that's a target date for 2035, and it'll you know constantly rebalance me. It starts out heavier in stocks, and eventually moves more to bonds over time. And you know, then and you know, you've basically just bought you know money management for a handful of basis points, and you just put those things in a 401k and let them do their deal. But today, when I'm, you know, a lot of the folks that we talk to are kind of using, they're at their retirement and they have these target date funds. And guess what? They're down more than the market sometimes when I look at these, right? And they're like, this is supposed to be the year that I have the most stability, right? I should be 65, 70% bonds right now, not taking a lot of risk. What is happening in these target date funds? And it's a, 
you know, I think the idea was great when they first came out, you know, decade and a half ago, if whenever, if that's when they came out, right, 15, 20 years ago, people started using these. I think right now it ends up by design putting you into bonds, which we just talked about why we don't think that's a great idea. I will mention, by the way, uh, I selected select 2010 target date funds, October 07 peak to March 09 trough. Some of them were down. I'm not saying this is going to happen because they had some mortgage-backed securities in there and stuff. But yeah, I mean, anywhere from 25 to 55% down some of these. I'll have to reread that chapter. But anyway, uh, by the way, if, if uh, I want to transition to the idea of why we think not only the 60-40 portfolio is not optimal, but why we think just the buy and hedge approach is. And I think uh, and if anyone wants any information on how we invest, the way we build strategies, or just want to give a comment, say hello, or give an idea for a, uh, a guest or a future show topic, uh, it's Derek.Moore at ZegaFinancial.com. That's D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E. Zega, Z as in Zebra, E as in Eddie, G as in George, A as in Apple. Financial is up to you to spell correctly. Uh, but Jay, if 60-40 is not where it's at, and, and if I think the idea of if you're using bonds to provide a buffer against the downside, if that's what you're using them for, then why not just buy more of the stuff that you'd rather have but have a downside hedge? And I think that's why being in equities but being hedged makes so much sense right now, given where rates are. Well, yeah, we just talked about the uh, uh, the, the, the idea that bonds won't provide, uh, you know, the offset. You know, the historically speaking, everybody thinks, oh, stocks go up, bonds go down, stocks go down, bonds go up, right? An inverse relationship, and over time, it averages out between coupons and dividends, and you know, they're both generally growing that you make money. Well, that's doesn't seem to be the case this year. We don't think it's going to be the case for the next few years. And I would argue that it hasn't been the right case uh, for the last three or four years, uh, especially with what rates have been, what bonds have been paying. So uh, I'm with you in the fact that if you're using bonds as the offset, they're going to disappoint you. So instead, right, what we do is we'll use options to create protection and let you own more of the stuff you like. I like the way that you presented that, that, the way that you pushed that. Like, hey, if, if you think the U.S. market is the place that is going to help you uh, at least outpace inflation and potentially provide growth, then have more of that. But have it where you have the protection built in and you don't have to rely on the inverse correlation between stocks and bonds, because that's probably not going to be there for you this year or next. Yeah, and I, th I think the other thing, too, is that so let's just talk about how, in, you know, generally we use, we use instruments, right, that have a defined downside. And we do use some, some fixed income. And, and some people have asked me, hey, wait a second, if, if you think bonds aren't going to do anything or they're going to have, you know, really nominal or minimal returns uh, and, and some interest rate risk, why do you use, you know, bonds? I mean, Jay, we like short duration. We actually use some short duration high yield and then hedge it uh, a lot of the time. And it's, it's interesting. It goes back to that coupon thing. Now, high yield and short duration high yield still has, uh, you know, bankruptcy or, uh, you know, that, that type of risk, default, default risk. risk. Yeah. yeah, default risk. But it goes back to that, you know, they, they are paying higher coupons. And so... They can be affected with interest rates. They can be affected with credit quality changes. They can be affected with default rates. And they can be affected by, you know, basically what people are willing to accept above treasuries. And that's why we watch that high yield spread. But I think, that, you know, short duration high yield on the shorter end, having some hedges, but it does have that coupon. I mean, I don't know, Jay, I mean, some of the coupons on those was the average weighted coupon about six and a half percent on the short end or something like that. So yeah, right around that range. Yep. There's a handful of the ones that, uh, that, are, that are double digits in there. Right. So they are a higher rate, right. Which is if I, you know, as we're sitting here and, and uh, I've been accused of quote unquote hating bonds uh, by other clients and other listeners of the podcast, I get it. I really come down hard on them as a protective vehicle in this environment. But there is a use for them in the portfolio, and you just talked about it, right? If we could earn, you know, 6%, we could clip a 6% coupon, going back to the idea of having 
higher yield to provide a buffer for the underlying asset, in this case, a shorter duration bond, why not do it? Oh, and by the way, when you can hedge it as well and limit the risk of those bonds at the same time, it ends up being a fairly, uh, uh, I'd say, a lower volatile way of kind of generating some income within the portfolio. We do believe income is important in our in our uh, in our portfolios, and it helps actually fund the hedges that we use on the S and P. Right, so there is a place in the portfolio if you use them right and strategically. So we're not completely against them by any means. We're just against a not protecting against the potential downside, or b. Uh, going too far out on the curve, right? Stick with something that's going to give you a decent coupon and it's in the lower duration end. Maybe, Derek, and I know this, I'm throwing a curveball at you here, but you know what? why is lower duration safer than longer duration? And what is what does duration even mean? What, is, what does that even mean? Maybe clarify that. All right. Let's say you want to borrow 100 bucks and you say, Derek, I want to borrow 100 bucks. And I say, okay, that's great. Uh, you pay me two and a half percent and do that for the next 30 years. Well, the problem is, and let's assume you're AAA rated, right? Just like a U.S. Treasury. The problem is if, if the market rate of interest changes and let's say interest rates go to like 5% and I'm like, oh man, I, I got this, this great cash flow, but it's only two and a half percent. I could go to the market right now and get 5%. And so that cash flow that gets discounted to the present, the value of the, of the loan now or, or that asset has to be depreciated down. And so it's, you have risk the longer you go out because if interest rates change, your cash flows are, are going to be stuck for a long time at that rate. Where if, it's, if you said, hey, I want to borrow 100 bucks, it's great, you're AAA rated, this is fantastic. Okay, give me 2% for the next year or two. All right, fantastic. Rates go to 10%. It's like, all right, well, I'm not getting 10%, but in two years, I can go get 10%. So that's sort of the, the layman's terms of why that matters. And in bonds, if we want to figure out what that asset, the bond, is going to be priced at, the longer duration and the lower amount of interest, the higher sensitivity to a change in rates in the market will be. So that's why 30-year bonds... There, By the way, Jay, there's a 100-year... I haven't checked it. It's got to be a mess. But there's a 100-year Austria bond that was issued at a pretty low rate. So it's like, oh, great. 100 years of you know 10 basis points. Fantastic. Locked into gonna that, be, aren't you? Yeah. Get good it. luck with that one. Uh, so anyway, so that's, that's why in general... And that's why right now, I mean, if you keep, we go back to that 1982 article, the people said, I'm going to get 17 or 18% as opposed to buying a 16% 30-year treasury. I'm going to do, you know, 30-day funds that get 17% because I want to keep duration short. And that's why when we hear people saying, I want to keep duration short, what they're saying is, I want to keep my sensitivity to changes in interest rates much lower than the longer. But it's, Jay, it just comes down to cash flows that come down to, you know, you're borrowing money at a market rate, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think in a, if a, you know, in your example, you use AAA rated and you weren't even talking about default, right? Because that adds, when you talk about high yield, default has to always come into question. So not only do you have that duration problem that you just talked about with time being, uh, you know, the sensitivity to rates uh, being higher when you add more time, you also have the chance of a business model changing. Right. Uh, you know, there's plenty of people that, you know, uh, took loans in 2021 or 20, sorry, 2019 uh, in advance of COVID. And then, you know, a business model can change. Right. And if you give somebody 20 years, there's a greater chance that something comes up that causes a bond to default, that a company just the environment changes. Right. And they can't repay. And so default risk also goes up. Now, if it's, you know, you never know, if it's a strong company, it's great. You, you don't get paid more for your bonds when the company ends up getting stronger that you lent the money to, right? Uh, you only take the risk of, hey, I may not get paid back my $100 at the end of 20 years because, you know, Jay Inc. Went, went belly up due to, you know, hurricane activity in South Florida, right? Who knows, right? But that's another reason why we like to stay in the shorter end of the curve, less rate risk sensitivity less default risk sensitivity. And what you said there was key, Jay, in that 
if the if you own a company's bond and they're knocking it out of the park, their cash free cash flow increases, they're they're growing, growing, growing. That's realized on the equity side. And it's one of the reasons, Jay, why we take the shorter duration bonds, and a lot of times we hedge them even within the portfolio, as a funding cost to participate in the equity growth. And really, if you think about it as a circle, you're taking some money, you use it to fund the equity purchases but you have limited downside on those instruments. And that's why to kind of take it full circle is over the long term to have growth in a portfolio, traditionally it's been inequities and equities go up and down and people's timeframes and circumstances are all different. But Jay, I think you hit it on the head. It's like, if you want to participate in the upside, you have to be in equities and but we prefer being equities that are hedged, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially for the core of your portfolio, right? For that long-term growth piece, for that part, especially as you're, you know, you're wanting to manage risk. I'll flip back to the, you know, the uh, target date, you know, uh, mutual funds and ETFs. You know, if, if you if you realize that, hey, when I'm done working, there's no more money coming in. I can't, you know, take excessive risk during that. Of course, you want to have protection on that, right? Because that's the nest egg, right? So for your core investments, we absolutely always believe, you know, hedging is number one. We hedge every investment, uh, and that's how we, that's our main strategies run that way. But you want to take a flyer on a stock with a small piece of money that you're willing to take some risk on. I still prefer to limit your downside risk, but you know, that's a little different if you want to, you know, go go out and. Uh, well, I guess I should say crypto, right? It's really hard to hedge your crypto these days. But uh, <laughs> don't do it, Jay. Don't don't get the don't get it. I won't even go there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so stocks and bonds, yes, for us, all of our portfolios. By the way, we don't uh, uh, we don't include crypto in any of our strategies today. So I'll I'll, dis- I'll disqualify that for now. Um, that was no hint at something that may come later. Wink, wink. But besides all of that, uh, you know, Derek, I think you're right. Hedge your core portfolio. You don't know what's going to come. We don't know when there's a COVID that's going to occur. Uh, but if you want to participate in the growth of the economy, equities right now are, are a better place to be for it. I also think, and uh, maybe we'll cover this more in, a, in another episode, it's one of the reasons why the alternative income space, and we just talked about bonds the way we have, it, alternative income continues to be, I think, a growing asset class. Of course, we do it with selling volatility. But it goes back to bonds. I mean, if you can't get, I mean, even we haven't even talked about the whole, I mean, the real return on bonds, you know, after inflation is at some of the lowest levels it's been, you know, looking back historically. Uh, so certainly that, that alternative income space, I think, Jay, will continue to, uh, to be somewhere that we operate. Yeah, let's, let's, and I don't want to get too deep in because I know we're pretty far into the podcast, but Right. The, the argument of, you know, why somebody would listen to this and go, yeah, 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 you guys made sense. But you know what? I need income, guys. Like I, I need, you know, three, four percent a year. I need to pull out of my portfolio. And if stocks drop, it means I'm selling my stocks at lower prices to generate the income I need. Right. And so uh, that's a real problem. We get it. We hear it all the time. And so people will either go to dividend stocks that will pay out a dividend. Those are fairly low these days. But OK, maybe they'll do it for you. Um, but there are other ways to generate income, Derek, right? And I think you were just touching on one of the strategies we run that actually harvests and sells volatility, right? Uses, uh, options to generate that alternative income, uh, to help, you know, replace what that piece of, a of a portfolio would do, replace the bonds that were paying you the, you know, four or 5%. So you can, you know, move out of those and move into something that's, you know, uh, not going to move with stocks or bonds. It's right as we call it an alternative, right? And it's that's something that we could probably spend three podcasts talking about. But I just, you know, you touched on it, and I think I wanted to put it in perspective for the folks that you know do have bonds because they need income. There are other ways of generating income. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we've beat up bonds enough. By the way, nothing we're saying is uh, don't take it as a recommendation. Let me just put that in there for the to be friendly to the uh, to anyone who's going to review this. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, and I also, I'm going to put a link, Jay, to our growth simulator. I don't think, you know, we haven't really talked about that too much. Maybe we should do a, a whole episode on that. But that's where you can put in your age, your assets, an estimated return. 
Uh, it includes some estimated social security, any number of things. I'll put a link to that and just see what happens when you change that return. Uh, a lot of people need more growth than they think they'll need, especially the good news is people are living longer. The bad news is you need money to last a lot longer. So I will put a link into that, Jay. Uh, maybe that's uh, for a future episode. Um, and finally, I, I did want to ask, are you watching the, uh, the WeWork document? Not documentary. It's, it's a series now on uh, Apple TV Plus. Have you checked that out at all? I haven't watched the WeWork one. I've been waiting for the Uber one to get a few episodes queued up. Uh, on Showtime, and uh, I want to watch that one next. But no, I have not been watching uh, uh, the WeWork one. Maybe I'll watch it. I mean, I, I mean, I know what happened. We watched it happen with those guys. It'd be interesting to see how uh, what they uncover in the show, though. So, have you have you liked it? You know, so far it's. I think it's been good because it it contextualizes or you know helps flush out. But I feel like I know so much from uh, I listened to the We Crashed podcast which flushes out a lot of this in, in long form. There was a whole season of, of those. And then we've seen the documentary, I think it was on a Hulu. Um, I, I'm unsure yet. I'm, I'm four episodes through. I'm watching it. I'm going to continue to watch it. It's a fascinating story, though. Um, I have been watching the Uber one, though, and I like it so far. So I think I you think like it like so that. far. Okay. I was, you know, I like to binge. So, you know, I'm kind of letting a few queue up before I jump into it. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm lukewarm on on the Apple Plus. I sorry Apple. I'm not an indictment of your, <laughs> your content you know, strategy. I've, I've, I can tell you I I found that uh the shows that I watch on Apple are pretty high quality just there's not very many of them. Right? So yeah. uh yeah. I'm sure the I'm sure it's great. So I will go and uh I will go and watch it. I've watched a bunch on the, Apple. The one I watched uh Suspicion, I think that was the name of it. It was like 8 9 episodes on Apple TV Plus which was really good I thought. It's, uh, it's got some, some good people. Yeah. And they put out really, I mean, like you could tell it's all 4k, really high quality video film. Top of the uh, line actors, actresses in it. Right. They're always going for big names. Yep. The whole bit. So anyway, all right, Jay, we'll, uh, we'll call it there. And, uh, I will not share our, uh, our basketball March madness brackets cause they are not worth anything to anyone at this point. Rest so, in peace uh, bracket. <laughs> Jay, thanks again for coming on. We'll, thanks, uh, we'll talk to you soon. See ya.